Sorry, I don't know. I was choking there. A great up. friend. A gr- he is a great friend of mine. He really is. I love you. It's, yeah. it's fine. It's fine. A great friend of mine and a great Bible teacher. And uh, it's a really great gift. And so uh, why don't we just receive him and, hello, and hello, listen hello. hard to what he's got to bring to us because uh, I'm sure it's going to do, do us good. Alan Harrison, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Are we rolling? Meaning, can you hear me? There we go, good. Right, that prayer slot between one and two is, as far as I know, still available. I'm going to be finished speaking by half twelve, so you won't miss anything. Okay? Let's build. Never mind. Great. Uh, Yes, good morning. Pardon? Yes, I'm... uh, (laughs) Bye! Somebody's volunteered me. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, hello, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Alan, and I would like to meet you, is I suppose what I'm saying. Uh, I'm one of the small group leaders here, do a bit of Bible teaching as well. Uh, come and, there's a lot of you, one of me, so if you don't know me, come and grab me rather than me having to run around. Uh, so, uh, yes, I'd, I'd like to meet you. Uh, the, where am I going with this? Oh yes, the sermon, great. So, uh, this morning we're going to be thinking about the goodness of God. It's church, so thinking about God seems like a, a good thing to do. Um, and for the benefit of those taking notes or for our excellent media team, uh, the sermon title this week is The Doctrine of the Goodness of God. I try to make them funny, but I didn't want to this week. Um, I've actually got a great sermon title. Not a sermon, just a sermon title about when Jesus in Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's called Knock Knock. Who's there? Never mind. Yes, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. Oh, that's for another day. So, the, the doctrine of the goodness of God. Now, this is a concept that, as a church, we've come face-to-face with over the last year or so, the last sort of 18 months. We've seen somewhere in the region of, is it 60-ish healings? Simon Parnham's keeping count, but he's not here today. Um, so, yes, something like 60 physical healings. Someone who was ill, and then they were not ill. Something was broken, and then they, it was not broken. Like, this kind, of, this kind of stuff. And also, along with that, we've experienced an increase of passion for worship. And as a church, on, a, on the whole, I think we are uh, more hungry for God than we were 18 months ago. Is this a fair, a fair statement? Good. Because um, that's what the rest of the sermon is based on. Um, however... Because we're experiencing a lot of blessing from God, this brings into the question, this brings a question of goodness of God into sh- very sharp focus. Because if we were a church who didn't believe in super- supernatural healings, if we didn't believe in seeking for them, or even if we did believe in them, but just sort of, yes, they happen somewhere, but we're not going to bother with that, um, then it would be very easy to use a blanket statement for why people remain, why people stay sick. Um, it's much easier to say that healings don't happen rather than to say that they don't happen in a way that we understand, or in a time that we understand, or in the manner or the process in which we understand. So the very concept of seeing supernatural healings in church, it kind of messes with some very tidy theological boxes. But that's fine, because God, um, God is outside of the box. God isn't even in a box himself. God creates the idea of a box. But we do see healings, and as such, we want to understand how they relate to the goodness of God. Because obviously, it's very good when somebody gets healed. But we want to sort of understand how this relates to the goodness of God as a concept. Now, in the book of Acts, which is in the back half of the Bible, which talks about 
after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead, talks about what goes on in the early church. And they had very th three very clear strands as to how to do church. And it was love for the Word, the Bible, love for the Spirit, who is God himself, and love for community, meaning people, friends. Uh, and these are not in any particular order, because if you lose one, you lose all three. And that's a different sermon. But in order to understand what God is doing in his spirit, in his community, we must go to his word. So it kind of works in a, almost like a trinity of, of understanding. So turn with me, if you would, to the Bible, to the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verses 13 to 22. Now some of you will be thinking, Job, that cheery book, that, that book that talks a lot about um, life going really, really well. Um, the book of Job is my favorite Old Testament book because its relationship with God with its gloves off. It's, that's a boxing term. I know nothing about boxing, but that's a boxing term. So rather than it being sort of cushioned, it's got a, um, it's very raw, it's very in your face. Um, it doesn't have the poetry of the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, or it doesn't have the victorious foresight of Jesus that Isaiah has in the book of Isaiah. But Job, rather, is the account of a man who lost literally almost everything, but refused to believe lies about God or about himself. Uh, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, I'm going to read through Job chapter 1, verses 13 to 22. Now, there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and struck them down with the servants, with, uh, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, so this guy's speaking, somebody else interrupts, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants had consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And another guy comes and interrupts. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck, them struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then a fourth guy comes and interrupts. Yet while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not, char uh, did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that it is truth. It is ultimate truth, Lord. Thank you, God, that you have sent your spirit among us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you inspired the Bible and that you inspire us and you help us to understand it, God. We pray for every church in Glasgow who is preaching your word this morning. God, I pray that people would be changed in their seats. Lord, I pray that they would know you more, know more about who you are, and experience more of you, Lord. We also pray for um, Andy as he's speaking in Dundee today, God. Lord, I pray that you'd bless uh, this time that we have with you and your word, and that we would see more of you through it. Amen. So... Job lost it all one fateful day. Job lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, and his camels, and this would be a, the equivalent of all his wealth. It was a farming community, so if you had a lot of sheep, you were, had a lot of money. If you had a lot of camels, you had a lot of money, and so on. So he loses all his cash, 
or the equivalent of his cash. He lost all his servants, his workforce, um, and then he lost all ten of his children. And imagine the way it's lined, outlined in the story. This all happens inside 90 seconds. He gets all this information in, in, in about a minute. Um, this is an awful, awful day for Job. I would venture that this is one of the worst things that a man can face in one day. Uh, in chapter 2, as if all this was enough, uh, Job is afflicted with, quote, loathsome sores all over his body, which he scratched with a piece of broken pottery. Where am I going with this? Right, we're not going to go into the details of the Hebrew or look at various interpretations of this book. We're not going to like, go into a, a massive exegesis about it, like looking at the tiny little bits. Rather, I just want to look at the broad view about how things happened for Job and how Job reacted to all these different trials. Firstly, notice that Job, what Job does when he hears this awful news. He tears his robe and shaves his head. It's quite a strange reaction to our ears. Um, but these were gestures of intolerable grief. Um, particularly in this kind of ancient culture, your hair was quite a significant uh, status. Um, so he shaved his head and he tore his robe. His robe would have been quite nice. Um, so he's, he's consumed with grief. Then he falls on the ground and worships. And the modern reader, you and I, might read this and think that's probably one of the last things I would like to do if I just received all this terrible news. But sometimes we don't realize that God is all we need until God is all we have. The last two verses speak for themselves. The Lord gave, this is Job speaking, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, I know what you're thinking. Weren't you supposed to be talking about the goodness of God? Because this, this is on a bit of a downer at the moment. Yes, well observed. Um, but if we only chalk the goodness of God up to when things are going well, when things are going our way, when we're doing well in life, when we're prospering, whatever, or when God feels close or when we're entirely healthy, then we're selling God far short of his true goodness. And I'll come on to this in a minute. So what we're going to do is move away from Job for a moment, and we're going to have a look at five aspects of the goodness of God from the rest of the Bible. Now, before uh, we'll do this, before thinking about what this has to do with us. Because um, it's all very well, if you read the Bible and think, oh, brilliant, that's a fantastic idea, I'm going to go and play on the PlayStation. If you don't take it into yourself, if you don't like metaphorically feed on it, if you don't do something about it and say, so what? How does this affect me? Then it's of limited worth. So um, there's something I want to emphasize uh, in this sermon. And if you're the kind of person who can, uh, after 11 minutes of listening, you just sort of switch off and start playing Snake or landing airplanes, where's Tim Quand? There he is. Um, landing airplanes on, on your phone. Then uh, listen for one more minute. I'll give you the crux, and then you can fall asleep and download the rest of it later on. AlanPHarrison.com. Thank you very much. <laughs> you think I'm joking? <laughs> what I want to underline in big, luminous, yellow highlighter is this. God's goodness does not change dependent on our circumstances. Now, it's all very well for me to stand up here and say this because, on the whole, my life is very good. I um, have a beautiful wife. I have a lovely home. I have many friends. I'm in the process of training for a good job. Uh, I have most of my health. I've lost 22 pounds and counting. I couldn't, I couldn't wear these jeans before last week. <laughs> and I hadn't worn them for about two years. So I'm very pleased about this. It's like a free pair of jeans. So I can stand here and confidently say that God is good. I can... I can confidently say that God is good. However, if none of these things were true, 
if I couldn't fit into these jeans, if I didn't have a good job, if whatever, then God would still be true. God loves you and me, rain or shine. One of the things that we have to hang on to if we're going to function as Christians is this truth. If God is not good, then he is not worth following. He is not worth worshipping. He is not worth speaking about, and he is certainly not worth dying for. This brings us to our first point. Point one in the sermon about the doctrine of the goodness of God. God is good. Hardly sounds like a point, doesn't it? <laughs> what did Alan speak about, about? What were his points about the sermon on the doctrine of the goodness of God? Well, point one was God is good. Did he say anything else? Nope, we just repeated it several hundred times. Um, point one is God is good. I'm just going to keep repeating it, like I say. Uh, no, we'll see. Hmm. God is good because he is morally perfect and gloriously generous. Okay, I'm going to go, this bit is the most dense and complicated bit of the sermon, so I'm going to go over it a bit slower, just so I don't trip over myself. Now, the foundation of all of our thinking about morality, good and bad, right and wrong, has to be measured against something. Okay, so when we look outside and we see the weather, we see the weather is good. Now, the weather isn't good in itself. When, certainly in Scotland, if we look outside and say the weather is good, it means the sun has appeared. There is no rain to be seen. So when we say something is good, we compare it against the standard of goodness. Okay? But when we're talking about moral goodness, this is a good thing to do or this is a bad thing to do, God is our standard. God is the measuring rod against we say this is good, this is bad. Now, the word good in Scripture is mentioned loads, but it's not an adjective. It's not a describing word. Okay? It doesn't describe God as good in comparison to something. So rather than, rather it says God is good, and this is first and foremost what God is. So we're not saying a description of God is that he is good. It's God is the goodness that we look at. Are we following? You can't say no because I'm going to carry on. Um, it's like, have you ever seen those signs that people hold up at like a football match or a concert or maybe even graffiti like, the whole, like Clapton is God or whatever, you know, or like Beckham is God or, or you know, insert your own cultural reference here. Um, in those circumstances, God is being used as an adjective because they obviously don't think that Clapton is a deity. They don't think that Clapton has power over life and death, but they're saying Clapton is really, really good at playing the guitar or whatever. Um, so here they use the word God as an adjective, whereas uh, rather the word God is an identification. It's the same with when talking about goodness. So in the same way, when we say God is good, we're not describing God in comparison to something else. This is what I'm trying to sort of hammer out here. We're talking about God's very character. Uh, we don't assess God against a prior concept of goodness. We define good in terms of God. So we don't come to God and say, you're good because of X, Y, Z. We come to things and say, this is good because of God's standard. Now, this, this, is, this, is, getting, this is talking about metaphysics and all different kinds of stuff. But let me give you an example. Um, God stands alone in that he is good without qualification. God doesn't need to do anything to be good. He is good in and of himself. Uh, Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 18, no one is good but God alone. Pretty black and white. We're talking about a superlative, uh, at the highest possible standard of authority on the matter. Uh, by way of comparison, uh, in John 17, 17, 
Jesus is praying uh, for future believers, us. And he says to God, sanctify them in your, sorry, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice he doesn't say your word is true, although Jesus certainly believed that it was true. So that's, that's not to say, um, he, said, he doesn't say your word is true, but rather he says your word is truth. So against God's word, we decide if things are true or false. Now against God's goodness, we decide if things are good or bad. Okay? Now, that's all very well, but how do we know that God is good? This is the question. So, like, talking about all this metaphysics, like, up there in the sky, like, airy-fairy kind of stuff, but how, do, like, how does it affect me on the ground? How does it affect me in Glasgow here today? Um, how does this cosmic truth affect what I do with my cash, my time, my home, my energy, whatever? And this brings us to point number two. The works of God are good. God has done many works over the years such as in Psalm 104, which reads, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Because that's talking about God creating stuff. And God... God's works are approved by God. So in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, when God is creating everything, he does an act of creation, it is good. He does another act of creation, it is good. He does another act of creation, it is good. And God creates things saying, that's good. I've made it, it's good. And then he gets to humanity. And he creates men and women and he says, it is very good. Which is quite a compliment. But, I mean, if you go, um, my dad has uh, a big dream of going to Mount Everest don't really think it's going to happen because he's turning 60 this year. Um, but if you look at Mount Everest, because uh, I've heard of people who like, walk through the Himalayas and they come across it and they think, it's all right, it's pretty big. Um, and then they sort of they go off. But if you stand and stare at it for long enough, like the, the majesty of this tallest thing on the planet sort of just like starts revealing itself to you. So when we hear humanity is very good, as in better than Mount Everest, that's quite a compliment. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, says that everything created by God is good. It's pretty clear, very black and white. So, God is the standard of goodness, point one, and what God does is good, point two. So, good. <laughs> Number three, the gifts of God are good. This is where we get in sort of to what we're experiencing at the moment. Now, the gifts of God are good because they express God's generosity to us. They're, and, you know, they're pretty nice to receive. Everybody likes receiving a gift. Um, such gifts, uh, the, the, gods, the gifts that God gives are of benefit to us. So it's nice to receive, and it's, it's useful as well. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, that the gifts are, like the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, are given to the body to help us. They're given to the church to help us do church, which is quite nice of God, in that he didn't just leave us alone and said, get on with it. Um, it is true that specific, this is true of specific good gifts, but also, like, so, for example, such as financial provision, restore relationship, physical healing, this kind of stuff. But it's also true in a more, nat uh, a more general sense, rather, um, of all good things are a gift from God. Uh, Jesus' brother James says this in his letter, saying, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So everything good is from God. And it kind of links up with number two and, uh, number, two and number one. Uh, because God is our Father, God knows what we need. 
In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And it makes a good point. I know that if somebody says, Alan, can I have an egg? And I give them a scorpion instead, that they would not be happy about it. Imagine that in a cafe situation. Here is your omelette, sir. Ah! <laughs> it's not going to go down very well. The point being that if I, someone who is imperfect, someone who is prone to sin, someone who is mortal, I know the difference between an egg and a scorpion, um, how much more so would God, who is holy, who is uh, infinite, who is perfect, God's going to know this distinction much more than I do. And I can see it and say, yes, that, that's tasty, that's dangerous. God's going to know the difference. But let's not overlook the greatest gift that God has given to the world, the greatest good gift, in that we have our spiritual debts paid for. The whole narrative of the Bible, the story from beginning to end, is that God created people, and as we saw, it was very good. And then we said, we'll take it from here, and rebelled. And then God said, all right, here's some rules, try and follow them. And we rebelled. And then God said, all right, I'll do it. And he sent Jesus. God became a man who took the penalty for our sins, everything we've done wrong, and died in our place. Now, this is the thrust of the whole Bible, like I've been saying. So in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 24, the prophet writes the words of God to his people. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up. I will not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. And he goes on later to say, I will make with them an everlasting covenant, an eternal promise, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of, uh, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they will not turn from me. Now, fear in this verse is talking about uh, fear of God, so that knowledge that God is awesome, um, like so, so holy, so worthy of, of praise that like, we're not going to turn away from him. Uh, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews explains the fulfillment of these things in Jesus by saying, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, talking about what Christ had done, he entered once for all into the holy place, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, this eternal redemption is the greatest good gift of all. And like all good gifts, it's free. Now, on Christmas Day, if Sarah came and gave me a present and said, this is for you, darling. Said, Brilliant. Now, can I open it? No, that's 35 pounds. It would not be as good a gift as if it were free. <laughs> um, now, this brilliant good gift, it's free. That's not to say it's cheap. It was very costly. It cost Christ his life. He then rose from dead. Uh, from the de from, he rose from death. Get the tense right. So it wasn't cheap. It was very costly. But it's free to us. Now, and because it's free, it's of immeasurable worth. And it's available to all who want it. It's, it's like, um, if you already have it, don't forget its cost. Like, it is free. It's given to us as a free gift. Um, we have righteousness. We have the goodness of Christ put onto us. So when God looks at us, he sees us through Christ. So God looks at us and goes, brilliant, my boy, my girl. Um, but it cost Christ a lot. So Ephesians 2 verse 8 reads, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a, gr it's a gift from God. So, number one, God is good. Number two, the works of God are good. Number three, 
the gifts of God are good. Number four, moving on, the commands of God are good. Now remember, we're taking, having a look at the whole Bible and saying this bit, this bit, this bit, this bit. And this kind of makes sense if the first three are true. If God is good, if his works are good, if his gifts are good, then he knows what he's doing when he tells us to do stuff or to not do stuff. And this is part of the Christian faith that people sometimes have the biggest problem with. Is like, why should I do what you or God or anybody else tells me to do? Am I not free? And the answer in this hypothetical conversation would go, of course you're free. But free to do what? It's like you can take a fish out of a pond and put it on the grass and say, be free! But it's going to die. It's going to end up in, some, in yesterday's newspaper surrounded by chopped up potatoes. It's, it, you're not freeing it, you're hurting it. And I wouldn't recommend that. Especially with those, uh, what are they, koi. Because they're very, very expensive. So, what... Does Christ set you free so that you can do whatever you want? No! No, don't be silly. Um, I've quoted him before, and I'll, I'll quote him again. Uh, our friend Uncle Ben. With great power comes great responsibility. That's Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, not the source guy. You understand? Um, I'm aware that there's two of them. <laughs> Perfect every time. Um, because we have such amazing gifts from God, who is a good God, it makes sense that God would be trustworthy and as such to do what he asks must also be a good thing. So Psalm 119, which is huge. Have you ever read it? It goes over several pages. Psalm 119 says things like this. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. And I've cut and pasted some parts there um, from Psalm 119, but what it's saying throughout the whole psalm is loud and clear. God's commands are good, which is good that when the preacher gets up and says, I think this, if you can back it up with a Bible verse, or 10. And remember that this is an Old Testament writer. This is somebody who was waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the redemption of God's people, waiting for their deliverance. But we, on the other side of the cross, we have received this righteousness so how much better do we know how good God is that we too should actually be glad that God has given us boundaries in which to live it's like the fish you put a fish in a pond you know it's maybe not a very big pond put a fish in the ocean whatever it's in water but if you take it out of the if you put a fish in the desert again it's going to be well fried (laughs) um God gives us these boundaries not to annoy us but for our benefit. In a world where the commands of God have no value, where we, as his kids, his sons and daughters, we must not react the way the world reacts when stuff happens. So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. And this brings us nicely onto our fifth point. Now, it would be inaccurate to say that point four and point five aren't very very related but they are different so point four was the commands of god are good point five is obedience to the commands of god are good it's all very well saying yes they're good fantastic but i'm going to break them (laughs) Um, actually doing what they say is um, a good thing in itself so paul writes to titus uh, one of his um, protégés to encourage christians to devote themselves to good works These are excellent and profitable for people, which is quite nice. 
God were, sorry, good works is high up on the list of reasons why God saved us. If you don't believe me, check out Ephesians 2 verse 10, Colossians 1 verse 10, 2 Corinthians 9, Titus 2 and Matthew 5. Just setting the record straight. We're not saved by doing good works, but rather we're saved to doing good works. So all the soup kitchens, all the healing on the street, all the preaching, all the taking hot meals to elderly relatives, that doesn't save you. But if you're saved and then you do healing on the street and meals to shut-ins and all, that's, these are good things, but they don't get us salvation. We have salvation because of what Christ did. Now, doing good works will look different for everyone because <laughs> look around the room, we're all different. We all look slightly different. Some of us look very different from others. For example, I am a male. I will look different from someone who is a female. Um, hopefully. <laughs> For example, moving on, it could be befriending someone who's, who's lonely. Maybe someone in your, your block of flats or a neighbor or whatever. It could be praying for somebody who needs prayer at work, on the street, uh, a friend, a family member. It could be making meals for someone. It could be giving cash away. It could be offering someone a lift because they can't get to church unless they take 17 buses um, or whatever it is. But know that God takes pleasure in your doing them and will reward you for carrying them out, says Ephesians 6. So we have our five points. God is good. The works of God are good. The gifts of God are good. The commands of God are good. And obedience to the commands of God are good. Excellent. Now let's think about these as a whole rather than five individuals. Uh, if we look at the screen, can we have... There we go. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Paul. We can see these in the order in which I've described, the five facets of the goodness of God. Now, this order is intentional because... Where you begin on them will be the determining, determining factor of how you relate to God. So if you see yourself at the bottom of the list, can you click once, if that's where you are, um, then you'll look up at the phrase, God is good, all the way up at the top, and think, how on earth am I ever going to get to there? I've got to do five, four, three, and two before I get to God is good. If your approach to embracing the goodness of God starts with obedience to his commands, then even if you were successful in obeying all the commands, which you won't be, but even if you were successful, it's only after that that you'll realize that they're good. So you're going to be like scrambling up, scrambling your way up the ladder to get to the very rawness of God, but you're going to fall and fail long before that. It's like, have you ever seen Takeshi's Castle? Yeah, have you seen this show? Some people might have not. So it's essentially it's a game show where people run an obstacle course in order to win a prize. I'm not, I'm not really sure what the prize is. It's probably bragging rights or whatever. But it's in a castle at the other end. I think it's Japanese or Chinese or something. Um, but I think, I think that I'm right in saying that the prize is in the castle. So you, you run through the obstacle course. Anyway, people, uh, they run across rickety bridges. They, what a, oh, I wrote this down. Um, they use rope swings. The people are chucking objects at them. It's really quite violent, actually. Um, and nine times out of ten, the contestants will fall off the rope bridge. They will fall off the the rickety bridge, they will get hit in the head with a ball and fall in the water. And it doesn't look like they change the water that often. So it's like a double penalty. Um, and it's a great, uh, great way to spend an afternoon if you find yourself with nothing to do. But if your relationship with God is somehow to manage to keep all the rules, then you're going to end up in the moldy water long before you get to the castle. And this approach is based on the preconception, on the idea that we obey 
so that God will love us. And this isn't just poor theology, but it treats God like a Tesco club card. It's, it's where I do lots and lots of things in order to get rewards. I will spend lots of money. I will have my insurance. I will have my shopping. I will have my DVDs. And I will get 17 pence off my next tin of beans or whatever. If obedience is our first port of call, then you will never taste true goodness. You will never get there. It would, if, if you could, it would work. Jesus wouldn't have had to have died. But it doesn't work, so he had to, he had to die in our place. Now, I'm not saying that obedience isn't required, okay? Or that the law is a hindrance to our faith. First Timothy 1 says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Lawfully? Lawfully. Rather, if we try to win God's approval by keeping the rules, then we might as well go home now, okay? Like, stuff the 24-7 press, stuff worship, stuff preaching, stuff community. We might as well go home now. Because in this mindset, if you start at the bottom, in troubled times... When troubled times come, and they will, Jesus said so in John 16, but when troubled times come, your entire world will fall apart. So if we're relating to God on the manner, in the manner of, I keep the rules and now you owe me, like treating God like a council or something, I've paid my council tax, empty my bin, then if our understanding of God and his goodness and his love, it'll just crumble when the hard times roll around. So... If this is how we relate to God, then we'll only love him as long as our life is carefree. And that's wrong. Now, keep in mind that all of these statements are true. And as Christians, we have to live in the reality of all of them. Just because we don't earn God's love, it doesn't mean that... uh, And I'm saying that like it's an inconvenience. Oh, we didn't earn God's love. Oh, well. I suppose we'll have to just get on with it. No, just because we don't earn God's love, just because we're sons, just because we're saved, just because we're want like in good relationship with God apart from our own merit it doesn't mean to say that we can we can just get away with doing right we have to do right Jesus is our example we love Jesus we serve Jesus we follow Jesus he is our model of relationship with God and he knew better than any of us what it meant to be a son of God a son of the most high but he also did good works he also obeyed the law he also paid his taxes Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. However, there is a better way of relating to God. Was that Nat West who said that? There is another way. Yeah? Um, If we start at the other end, click. If you start up there. That's not to say that you're above God. (laughs) Just seeing this on the big screen for the first time. That's not to say that you start above God. But if we approach, it should probably be on the flat, but then you'd have to all crowd around it on the floor and it'll get dirty and whatever. Um, But if we approach God first and foremost from the base, based on his goodness, then this becomes our baseline. This becomes from where we start. It becomes our starting block. Um, And this is where we get our strength. This is where we get our desire. This is where we get our faith to do points two, three, four, and five. Okay? Now, if we're secure in his love, then we'll instinctively know that, um, that his works are good. And because of that, we're more likely to see them. We're more likely to appreciate them. Now, if we know that his works are good, then surely, surely, if we know that God is good and his works are good, then we, his gifts must be good. We just come to the Bible and say, yes, scorpion, egg, hmm, difference. But if, he is, if his works are good and his gifts are good, then he is trustworthy enough, surely, is trustworthy enough to believe what he tells us that his commands are good too. And because of that, we want to obey them. 
And that's not to say that being a Christian will always be like a walk in the park on a summer's day, which, to be honest, in Glasgow is once a year, May 28th last year, May 28th the day before. Not quite sure what's going on with the calendar. But that's not to say that being a Christian will always be a sunny walk in the park, because when it all hits the fan, as it may well do or may well have done in your life, resting on the unshakable goodness of God is a safe place to be. And this cultivates love for God by which we obey. we obey. We obey because we love him, not the other way around. If we start with the goodness of God and work our way down these, we stand firm when the ground gives way beneath our feet. When it comes to goodness, our standard should be God himself. So do we always understand what's going on? No, because now we see through a glass darkly, which can mean go and wash your windscreen. But imagine you're driving and you've got mud kicked all over, all over your windscreen. You're going to see a partial view and I wouldn't recommend doing it. But one day, when we see him face to face, I will look Christ in the face, and every sad thing will come untrue, to quote Tolkien. Until then, we stand on the goodness of God, because if God isn't good, Christianity falls. It's, it's of no merit. We're all wasting our lives. If he's not good, he doesn't deserve to be worshipped. If he's not good, he doesn't deserve to be served, and he wouldn't dream of dying in our place. No. God is good, and so we worship him. So, what do we do about this? What's, what's our response? So what? Now, how do we turn this from 40 minutes of me talking uh, into something more concrete we can do with our lives? And I'd suggest a few things. Number one, search your heart. Let's uh, not become a cardiothoracic surgeon or anything, but have a... Use introspection. Look inside. Assess your... Assess your heart. You, you know what that means? It's, it's like a metaphor. I'm not sure how better to describe it. But think about how you think. Think about how you react. Do you relate to God primarily, primarily by doing things or by relationship? For example, would you feel less spiritual if you did fewer things in church? That's a damning question. Do you know that God is good or are you just really, really hoping that he is? Secondly, Number two, let's encourage each other with this truth about the goodness of God. Let's celebrate with those who celebrate. If somebody is healed, yes, celebrate, it's good. If somebody is saved, celebrate. If somebody is filled with the Spirit, celebrate. We, like, church can be so dour. We go to church today, I hope nobody sat in my pew kind of thing. Um, now, of course, we have to mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. Get alongside people who are struggling. And I'm not saying that because God is good, everything will be rosy, because sometimes we might want to shave our heads and die because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. But what I'm saying is let's acknowledge the reality of the good as well as the reality of the bad. We're so much about let's not pretend that this stuff isn't happening. Let's face the reality. Let's look at the head on. Let's deal with it. Brilliant. Let's do that for the good as well. Finally, let's remind ourselves that God is good because we can so quickly forget how quickly do we forget these truths? And if it is truth, sanctify them in your, in your word. Your word is truth. If this is truth, if this is the standard, how, how quickly do we go, oh, yes, that's right, as opposed to, man, everything's falling apart. I've often found myself repeating Bible verses to myself, and I do it out loud, which I probably shouldn't do on walking to school. Um, I'm not a pupil, by the way. I'm, a, I'm trained to be a teacher. Um, man, big kid. Um, but I often find myself repeating Bible verses to myself about God's goodness in times of trouble. 
because we have to take the truth of Scripture as a higher standard than our circumstances. Let's not say that our circumstances are false, that we're deluded, that it's like, don't, let's not take the Buddhist view, it's not really happening. If a dog's gnawing your leg off, you know it's happening. Let's, but let's put the truth of Scripture above where we find ourselves in our lives. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 16.34, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures, finish it, forever. Psalm 38, sorry, Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's definitive. Because the, the answer is surely no one. People will think they can be against us. Satan knows he is defeated, but he's still going to jolly well try. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Who in the end can triumph over God? And we're found, we're found wanting. We need to be reminded of these good things about a good God because we live in a bad world. But we serve a good God. 